Hello and welcome to episode number 109 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, October 25th, 2010. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast is another installment in the Holistic Management Series. The Holistic Management Series is brought to you by Holistic Management International. You can learn more about holistic management by visiting their website at www.holisticmanagement.org. Holistic Management is also on Facebook. I would encourage you to check out their Facebook page, and I will link to that in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. This episode of the podcast is um, interesting because it is really the second part of a two-part interview. Now, the first part is a video audio presentation by the guest of this episode of the podcast, who is Dan Daggett. And Dan is an author and uh, journalist, ecosystem restorer. And Dan put together a really great audio-visual slideshow that is on the Agro Innovations blog that will be linked to on the show notes for this episode and also can be found on the data and documentation blog of uh, Holistic Management International. I will link to that as well. Now, this video really gives you a visual sense with a lot of description and explanation on Dan's part uh, about many of the things that he is talking about and has worked on through the years, and I strongly encourage that you check that out. It should be this interview that you're about to listen to should be considered the second part of that interview. It's the question and answer that comes after the audio-video presentation. Now, that said, uh, some people, they don't have the bandwidth or the desire to watch video online. And if that is the case for you, uh, this interview that you're about to listen to does stand on its own. So you do not need to watch Dan Daggett's audio-video presentation to enjoy and get something out of the video that you're about to hear. However, uh, to really get the full impact of Dan's message, I strongly recommend that you check out the, uh, the video that precedes this. And uh, the video is being released on the same day, so if you're listening to this podcast now, I would suggest that you uh, get on the Agro Innovations blog and uh, check out that video and then come back and uh, listen to this interview with Dan Daggett. On this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, we are joined by Dan Daggett. Dan is an author, journalist, and ecosystem restorer who has written several books of importance to the land conservation movement, including Beyond the Rangeland Conflict and The Gardeners of Eden. Dan Daggett, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Well, thanks, Frank. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Good to talk to you. Dan, let's start by talking about the idea of issues versus goals and how this can play out in a management context. Could you go ahead and read that first excerpt uh, from your book, Beyond the Rangeland Conflict? In the environmental debate, issues have ceased being the means and have come to be the end. We are prepared to decide whether or not a person is a good manager without ever looking at their land, and we're willing to decide whether or not the land is healthy without ever seeing it. If that land is right in terms of the issues, and if it is protected by a legal fence of the proper regulations, we assume it must be healthy. 
If not, some scoundrel must be subverting those regulations or some slob must be running roughshod over them. And if a piece of land is not right with the issues, then it goes without saying that it's in bad shape and getting worse. We make those assumptions every time we write a letter to a land management agency saying, do this and don't do that. Well, that that's a good illustration of that is I have a friend who, who teaches courses in uh, in ecosystem health, and he goes out onto a ranch not too far from Flagstaff, where I I've lived for well I used to live for uh, for quite a while, and he, he they'd go out they'd stop pull over get out of the truck walk out onto the rangeland, and he would ask them if that land was healthy. And he'd say they'd all get real nervous and they'd start scuffling their feet around. And, and finally, one of them invariably would come over and ask, is this land grazed? And, and so he tried. He started trying different things with him. If he said, yes, it's grazed, they would, oh, my gosh, this, this place is in terrible shape. I mean, you can see that all these things are going wrong with it, and it, it really needs to be protected. But if he would tell them that the land was, wasn't being grazed, then he got a complete, oh, well, yeah, it looks great. It looks like it's healing, obviously, you know, the things that uh, were damaged when it was grazed because every place around here was grazed at one time. All those things are healing. It's it's it, like when you read a newspaper and, and you see, uh, you read an article about some environmental problem or other, especially that dealing with the land because th that's the kind of environmental problems I deal with mostly, is that they say they're trying to solve those problems and that uh, – what they intend is to protect so many acres of land. Uh, that embodies the assumption that if the land is protected, that it's healthy. Uh, that's what I'm talking about here. The whole idea that uh, the basic premise of contemporary environmentalism, that the way to right any environmental problem that has to do with the land is to reduce uh, the amount that humans use the land, reduce the degree of human impact on the land, and it will automatically be healthy. And I've found that to be the case even when we can take people out on the land and show them counterexamples to that, they continue to, uh, to identify the health of the land in terms of issues rather than in terms of results. Well, let's talk about um, having goals be the driver for success. Could you read that second ex excerpt um, from your book, Beyond the Rangeland Conflict? Sure. On the Orm Ranch, that's a ranch that's not too far from where I'm sitting right now, actually. Uh, on the Orm Ranch, winning is measured in terms of goals. Goals are defined in terms of the land, in terms of its health, vitality and diversity, not in terms of what we ought to be doing on it. Team members there have found that win-lose situations arise all too easily when they address land management decisions from the let's-decide-what-to-do approach. If the team decides to do what some of its members want, Almost invariably, it means that some of the others don't get to do what they want. One side's winning then becomes inextricably attached to the other side's losing, and they're in conflict before they get started. If, on the other hand, the team sets goals that are defined in terms of the condition of the land, such as having more healthy riparian areas or more biodiversity, they found that it's quite possible for everyone to get what they want without anyone coming out a loser. You know, the one thing that I found is, is if you start 
Oh, I've been in meetings. The first meeting of the 6-6 group, you know, the facilitator, when she said, what do you want on the land? Some of us immediately said, well, we want all those cows off or we want the fences down or something of that sort. And she said, no, no, let's talk about uh, what we want the land to be. Uh, you, talk, you can start a discussion among human beings about how you do anything and you'll almost invariably get into a fight. Somebody will want to do it this way, and somebody else will want to do it that way. But the thing that I found, and I, I'm just—I think that it's a, a learning that we can have here, with regard to these environmental issues, environmental issues on the land, where we can learn how to work peacefully on lots of other things. Because if you set goals, I mean, you can get all sorts of different people together to build. You know, say if your goal is to build a house, well, you can have Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals, and they'll all sit out there and they'll all build a house. But if you ask them uh, who ought to be president or something, you'll end up in just a, a battle royal. The thing of it is, goals have a tendency to focus people, to bring them together. They, I've even been in cases where they said, well, we'll try it this way, and then if that doesn't work, we'll try it my way. Uh, and it, it just diffuses the whole conflict situation. But if you start talking about how you want to manage the land, which is almost invariably how we talk about environmental issues, you're, you're going to end up with a battle. You're going to be in, end up with one side pulling for their solution, the other side pulling for that solution. And most likely, you'll end up with the land uh, being worse off for all this, and so will you by being at each other's throats. Well, I wonder if you could um, address this issue um, holistic management has been very uh, important in helping people to set goals and giving them the tools to work towards those goals. And you've actually seen this in action. Can you talk a little bit about how holistic management has been important and uh, how it's been effective in that? Well, holistic management, um, first of all, holistic management is, uh, as, as, at least as I see it, is entirely goal directed. The, the, you, you could set up the uh, well. You could make the argument that it, yeah, but uh, you know it's all about applying holistic management. But that, that's sort of a transparent technique, uh, so far as I've seen, and that you, you look right through it to the whole idea of making goals direct what you do. And one of the 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 most interesting uh, uh, principles of holistic management, again, as I understand it, is the idea that you assume that you're wrong. When you when you uh, start from uh, prescriptions or uh, uh, methods or your own ideas about how to manage the land, you're always assuming that you're right. But when you assume that you're wrong, my wife asked me, well, if you assumed you're wrong, why would you bother to do it? Well, assuming you're wrong is the only way you can get yourself to monitor. Nobody wants to monitor if they assume they're right. And monitoring is the only way that you can find out if you're really achieving your goals. And, and that is holistic management. I, you know, I'm, just, I'm just so uh, I'm leery of, of uh, prescriptions and formulas and all this stuff. But I, I think that holistic management is one of the least – formulaic uh, management types that I know, and I keep coming back to it as a, a way, a, a kind of planning, a, a kind of acting and doing and rechecking what you're doing that keeps you grounded in what's really important, and that is whether you're actually achieving on the ground what you set out to achieve on the ground. When goals are clearly set, animals can be used as an important tool for regenerating degraded landscapes. 
Now, there's an excerpt in your book, Beyond the Rangeland Conflict, about La Inmaculada Ranch in northern Mex- Mexico. Uh, could you share this excerpt with us? Sure. The cattle at La Inmaculada are kept in one large herd to concentrate their impact. And few ranchers concentrate impact as much as Ivana Gary. As we walk out into the paddock, we scuff our feet through soil that resembles what you would find in a tilled garden. As a matter of fact, Yvonne actually uses his herd of 3,000 cattle as tillers, grazing them for half a day in a field of 50 acres to prepare it for the planting of tepary beans and Indian corn, native plants once cultivated by indigenous peoples. The soil where we stand now is pulverized. Cattle dung and grass litter are churned into the mix along with limbs and twigs busted from shrubs and trees by the continuous passing of the cattle on their way to water creating a loose mulch in some places up to six inches deep. I, I, I can remember, I, I can picture just perfectly that the place that I was describing there. And it did look like, it, I said to somebody that was with, uh, with us at the time, I said, you know, most organic gardeners I know would kill to get soil like this. It was, it was right next to a, uh, a water point, so the impacts there were really high. And, and it had been a water point for quite some time, so there, was just, there had been dung mixed into the soil there so it was just uh, fabulous stuff um the you know we, we I've, I've looked at so many sites that have been uh, people have tried to restore using uh, mechanical means and chemical fertilizers and have just seen what animals have been able to do i just ran across a website the other day uh, about in California, and, and oddly enough, I just gave 11 talks in California about a year ago, and and uh, out there we're seeing a, a bunch of really good things happen. It was about a preserve that they had brought cattle back onto in order to restore ecosystem health or some aspects of it to this particular preserve. So uh, things like that I've, I find really interesting. Uh, I find really heartening because we're looking beyond our preconceptions to find out what really works and we're out really applying it. Sure, humans have done bad things, terrible things to the environment. We've done them by doing things that didn't work and then by continuing to do those. That's one of the things that scares me about contemporary environmentalism. I I, I think that if we continue along some of the courses we are uh, uh, pursuing right now with removing human use, from more and more acres of land, we could end up with environmentalism being the worst thing that's ever happened, to the, creating the biggest environmental disaster the American West has ever seen. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your description of um, the use of animal impact on uh, La Inmaculada Ranch is that Ivan Aguirre is someone who is managing for a goal and he's using cattle to achieve a specific objective. Now, a lot of the research that I've seen that's trying to measure the efficacy of cattle to restore degraded ecosystems or to improve ecosystem processes, uh, they're not really managing towards a goal. They're just kind of putting the cattle out there, comparing system A to system B, and seeing what the results are. So I'm wondering, um, and and a lot of the times that... uh, you know, these scientists are failing to grasp this concept of managing towards a goal. Could you talk about how you've seen actual land managers using animals as a restorative tool? You brought up an interesting issue because uh, 
If you remember the, the slide of the irrigated land in uh, the Owens Valley in California and then this, uh, the comparison photo of the restored land in New Mexico with the rainbows uh, out of it that I've talked about. In any case, I, I, we were making a proposal to restore some land in the, uh, that land in the, in the Owens Valley in California. And what we were told that, oh, well, we can't use your method unless it is backed up by a scientific study. Uh, there's another interesting aside to that, too. We had a scientist uh, that we hired to plan a design a study that would meet their requirements. And one of the things he asked them is, well, what were the design uh, characteristics of the study that proved uh, the, the uh, management technique you're using right now? And, and there wasn't any. They were using a management technique that wasn't backed by studies. It was backed by assumptions. But in order for them to use a new one, it had to be backed by studies. And when we said, well, uh, we have to design this study uh, to take into account the fact that the management we use is adaptive. If something isn't working, we change it. So, uh, And we try something else to see if that works, and we measure its effectiveness against the results we're, we're after. And they said, oh, well, you can't do that with a scientific study. You have to set what you're going to do and then do it. And then, in other words, science seems incapable uh, of, of at least science uh, that you would call pure science. So what, what I think is when it comes to the land, there's only one true science, and that's applied science. And applied science to me means setting a goal and working to achieve it. And so that's what we run into a huge amount of problem here with scientists. They do exactly what you said. They design a study. They say, well, it means you put a lot of cows out there, you move around a little bit, and then you go check it. But that's not the way uh, holistic management is applied. It's not just a cookbook where you read the directions in the book, you do it, and then uh, you go see what uh, came out of the oven. That's not the way it works. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book, um, The Gardeners of Eden. Uh, one of the fundamental tenets of this book is that historically humans have acted as a kind of keystone species in maintaining important ecosystem processes. Can you talk about this concept in a little more detail? Well, we're working on uh, another, uh, well, uh, uh, the Verde River that uh, there's been just, oh, recently uh, grazing was removed from along the Verde River south of where I live in order to save a threatened uh, a fish, a fish that had recently been designated a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. So cattle were removed, and lo and behold, everybody then watched as the river transformed in such a way that no one expected uh, big, beautiful sedge meadows that were just uh, green as emerald, this staircase of meadows eroded away, and we lost soils back. One scientist said we've eroded the river back beyond the, the Pleistocene. And, um, well, one of the things that we discovered as we were trying to find out what the Verde River used to, what used to sustain it before livestock was there to sustain this staircase of emerald meadows is we found out that humans, there, there was a village on every point above every turn in the river, and that humans had been active in this river valley for as long as humans had been there. And one of the things that they had been doing is cultivating things that were very much like the sedge meadows. Uh, humans 
also, well, you can go to the Great Plains and you find uh, that the, the Indians sustained, oh, there's a wonderful book called Fire in America uh, by uh, a fellow named Pine who used to be a PYNE, that, uh, who used to be a hotshot around here. But he, he talks about how uh, the Indians sustained essentially what was bison pastures across the Great Plains and into the Intermountain West, and he, he, he even cont- uh, contends that they expanded these pastures uh, with fire and with the huge herding characteristics that were natural to bison, but also that were used by and cultivated by humans, that they that expanded the bison pasture all the way back to Massachusetts. I have another friend, uh, I have a friend that... Uh, uh, one of the things he does sort of as a hobby is to fly over parts of the West and find old processing, old ranching sites that the Indians, uh, the pre-settlement Indians used uh, buffalo jumps we've heard of, but there are other things too. There are chutes, there are runways, there are even corrals where the Indians uh, herded and essentially processed animals uh, other than bison. There are uh, bighorn sheep corrals around here. There are elk corrals made of stone in box canyons. And uh, the Indians were ranching these animals. This we know has happened all over the world where uh, one of the most important predators on the planet, uh, maintaining the prey, uh, predator-prey uh, interactions that, that actually created some of the great grasslands that were some of the most environmentally productive areas on the planet, were sustained by humans using fire and using uh, herd hunting as a, a, a technique of sustaining the herds that sustained the grasslands and then sustained the humans. And one of the ways to tell that this has been the case is in places where this interaction is removed, we have been able to watch the systems, the ecosystems deteriorate. And the, the great grassland, I mean, you, you can go to places, I've been wanting to go back and rephoto some of Lewis and Clark's, uh, the, some of the areas they described. They talk about the, inter, uh, the uh, confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri as a bowling green. And uh, I know you would go, I've been in plenty of these places and areas that we know were once just pure grasslands are now full of trees. And they're full of trees, uh, not because of any change in the weather so far, I'm willing to bet, and I think I can back that up. It's because of the change in management, because one of the keystone species, humans as hunters, has been removed. Well, as I hear you talk about um, this notion of humans as a keystone species, I wonder, and it seems like many of these indigenous cultures, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, their lifestyles had them behaving pretty much everyone in the society as, as you describe them, as gardeners. And I wonder what that tells us about how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive our relationship to nature in this technological society and, and maybe how you perceive that that, uh, that, that uh, perspective that we have now needs to change. Well, I, I think... You know, as our society has become more and more urbanized, we've tended to adopt the urban way of looking at things where, you know, anything that doesn't have a house on it is either a vacant lot or a park. Uh, And anything that walks on four legs and is fuzzy is a pet or a zoo animal of some sort. And we have a tendency to think that the only way we, because, you know, we're, we're, we think of the lands that aren't vacant lots or, or neighborhoods as parks, 
we have a tendency to think that uh, if we find something that's not a park, it's our uh, obligation to turn it into such. Uh, it's like the country mouse and the city mouse that Aesop, uh, the guy who wrote the fables, writes about. Um, we're, we're losing the country mouse perspective. We're losing our connection to the land. We're 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 turning our cities into into these kind of space stations that are surrounded by areas where we're considered to be aliens. We're ending up living on the land as aliens. And I think one of the things that's happening to us right now is. Oh, even as we seem to value "quote unquote" wilderness more and more, we're thinking of it as a zoo. We're actually leaving the planet. I've been wanting to write a book about you know how we are leaving the planet, how we're getting rid of or cutting our ties to the planet, and how we're abdicating and abandoning all the old jobs that we used to do. I mean, the planet, the ecosystem, Gaia, whatever you choose to call it, will deal with this in some way, and. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Actually, we're fighting. Fighting is as nature tries to deal with our abandonment. I look at our abandonment as that was in one of the slides in my slideshow about how we abandon abandon the land. Uh, the species that live there changes. Uh, in a lot of cases, we're seeing all the plants that used to depend on us acting as herders and predators on the land interacting with the animals that were our prey animals, mostly herd animals, as that uh, relationship dies, the plants that used to depend on it, perennial grasses mostly, they die out too and are replaced by annual grasses or plants that we call weeds. And in the height of irony is we label these plants that essentially we've created by abandoning our role with nature and with the land. We, we label them as weeds or invaders and go out and kill them with chemicals. So we're trying to keep nature from responding to a situation that we created ourselves. And it's, 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 it's a perplexing and, and troublesome uh, thing to, to watch and to try to change and, and then be called anti-environmental, as I've been called, as I try to change it, because I support using the land instead of preserving it. Well, as a concluding note, I wonder, one of the most uh, poignant, I think, and... and um kind of contradictory things in the book The Gardeners of Eden is your portrait of the Tiptons, who are these amazing ecosystem restorers, but you describe them as almost on the margin. Could you talk a little bit about the Tiptons? Well, I just gave a talk at a university uh, uh, back in the East in Illinois where I was trying to make the point that uh, that actually being an effective manager of the land, an effective ecosystem healer, especially one who goes out on the fringes and, and tries to expand our knowledge of what makes nature work and how can re we can restore uh, function to ecosystems that have been really damaged, that these people uh, live, uh, they live in a, a, uh, a restructured bus. Uh, <laughs> we call the Pink Panthers, has a Pink Panther uh, painted on the end of it, and I contrast that with Al Gore, who, in my estimation, uh, it has been able to uh, use environmentalism and, and uh, the whole idea that uh, the best way to live on the planet is by reducing human impact. He lives in this huge mansion. Uh, it, it just... It, I ask the question when I show some damaged land as, a, as opposed to some or, or land that's been restored, 
which of these is worth the most money. And, and what it turns out to be is the way things exist right now, the way our ecosystem, our environmentalism is set up is damaged land, and land that we're damaging even further by some of these unwise practices that I've described is worth more than healthy land. And as I said to an economics class at this university, well, the law of supply and demand tells us that we're going to end up with more unhealthy land and less healthy land. We've got to learn to value the people we have who can teach us by showing us by example, by actually healing the land, how to make the land healthy, how to live in a land, in, on the land, on the planet today, in a way that is healthy instead of in a way that we merely prescribe according to various uh, political views. Well, Dan Daggett, on that note, I would like to thank you very much um, for the wonderful books that you've written for all the work that you've done to get the message out on ecosystem restoration, and also for the time that you've taken uh, to put together the visuals uh, for the previous part of this interview and uh, for the time that you've taken to answer some of my questions. Well, uh, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity. That concludes my interview with author, journalist, environmentalist, and ecosystem restorer Dan Daggett. Dan is the author of um, two important books. One is called Beyond the Rangeland Conflict, and the other is called The Gardeners of Eden. Now, I will link to um, some pages on the Internet where you can check out those books and perhaps even purchase them if you are so inclined. This episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast is another installment in the Holistic Management series of the podcast. The Holistic Management series is sponsored by Holistic Management International. You can learn more about holistic management by visiting Holistic Management International's website at holisticmanagement.org. I will link to that on the show notes for this episode. And as I mentioned at the outset of this episode of the podcast, this is actually the second part in a two-part series uh, being released on the same day. The first part is an audio-visual presentation by Dan Daggett of many of the concepts and ideas that he talks about in this interview. If you have not checked out that audio-video presentation yet, I strongly encourage you to go check it out. Uh, it's about 40 minutes long, and it's uh, very informative with lots of photos uh, from around the country about how ecosystems can be restored and uh, how ecosystems are not restored. Now, I recently got an email uh, from Rosalie with a show suggestion, and Rosalie wrote to me saying that um, I should include an interview with the permaculturalist, I believe he's in Austria, Sepp Holzer. Now, I have actually gotten in touch with Sepp Holzer, and um, he and his wife do not speak English. They are German speakers, and uh, I am not a German speaker, so that definitely put a big obstacle in the way of interviewing the great Sepp Holzer. Now, if there's anybody out there in the agro-innovations community who is a German speaker who would like to somehow act as a facilitator or interpreter for an interview with uh, the permaculturalist Sepp Holzer, please send me an email at podcast at agroinnovations.com, or you can uh, get on my Facebook page. There's a link to that on the front page of agroinnovations.com, uh, or there is an email form uh, on the web page, you just click on content on the Agro Innovations um, website, 
and uh, you can send me an email that way as well. So if you are interested in somehow facilitating or acting as an interpreter for an interview with Sepp Holzer, please get in touch with me. Or if you know someone uh, who could help out with that, I'm sure that uh, the listening community would very much appreciate the chance to hear from the great Sepp Holzer. Also, I have received a lot of great show suggestions from listeners. Um, I have uh, been pursuing those. I can't say that any of those uh, are forthcoming yet, but hopefully they will be. And um, if you hear a show that you recommended on the Agro Innovations podcast, well, I'd like to thank you in advance for making suggestions. I always appreciate show suggestions, and you can get in touch with me with your suggestions uh, using the information that I gave you previously. So that's podcast at agroinnovations.com. You can get in touch with me via Facebook. Agroinnovations is also on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. So there are many, many ways to get in touch with me and share your show suggestions. And a final reminder before I wrap this show up that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>